Welcome to uh, Valley Context. Um, I'm the host, Ryan Shriver, CTO of Singlestone. And uh, this is a new project where we're going to explore um, how architects and engineers solve uh, very complex problems. And today we have with us Don uh, Sisso, um, and Chief Security Architect at Singlestone. Uh, welcome to the program, Don. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me, Ryan. All right. So, Don, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? My name is Don Mills, as Ryan said. Um, I've been doing um, mainly primarily security focused um, operational stuff for most of my career. Let's see, I probably spent 85% of my career doing security, 10% doing uh, networking, and the rest was a mixture of VMware and uh, storage device sales. So I had a lot of the opportunity to work with a lot of different types of, of, of infrastructure and, and to kind of get my hands around a lot of different pieces of the puzzle. Well, cool. So, so tell me a little bit about what type of projects are you working on today? What kind of architecture work um, has been top of mind for you recently? Um, the most architecture related thing I'm doing um, today is I'm working, I just finished working on um, an identity and, and access management solution for one of our customers. And that was a really good project in that it, it sort of crossed the boundaries of the history of compute, if you will. There's a lot of applications that are, you know, old school mainframe type stuff. And then there was some newer development that was going on that uh, much more modern uh, development practices. Um, and so the, the, the challenge of integrating all those different pieces uh, made for a pretty interesting uh, engagement, I think. Other than that, I spend a lot of time uh, at Singlestone. Um, I used to do really heavy focused on cloud architecture um, for a lot of our customers. Um, I still do a lot of that, but, but focus a lot more on the security aspects now, and I've let other people sort of come in and, and, and take over you know, the nuts and bolts of a lot of cloud engagements. I got you. And so, you know, what I'm interested to know um, in this series and with you and is, you know, how do you approach sort of problem solving? So, I, right, you're a little different. And then uh, I've had a chance to work for you for the last couple of years, right? And so uh, one of the biggest things I've taken away from your approach is uh, measure three times, cut once. As a software right. developer, I usually barely even measured and just ripped it and figured if I get it right, well, I'll turn it around again. But um, but I'd love for you to explain uh, to the viewers what is your sort of approach to kind of problem solving. Like when you when you're fixed with a complex problem, like how do you get oriented um, so that you can start to think about you know essentially the problem space and then the solution space. So a lot of it depends on the type of problem and the size of the problem. I mean, because sometimes you're faced with a problem space. Uh, that is so large, it's almost impossible to sort of wrap your mind around um, all of it. Um, and that can start to introduce a lot of worry and fear, at least for me, and then that's sort of a downhill slide. So what you want first want to do is try to break things up into manageable um, chunks. Um, so I'm not going to try to architect uh, everything all at once, right? I'm going to break it into manageable chunks um, so that I can focus on, on the individual pieces um, and do the best job on it. I'm a lot different from a lot of architects in that I'm a lot more right-brained uh, than it would seem at first uh, glance uh, or based off my job. And so I have a lot of intuition 
uh, I get a lot of in, leaps of intuition. I couldn't necessarily explain. Doesn't make for a great, you know, podcast video, but it, yeah. it's, it's difficult for me to explain a, a leap of intuition based off experience and just the way my brain works. But you know, primarily that's for problem solving. I'm going to approach the problem space, define it as tightly as I can, and then start to break it down into component pieces that I can handle a little more easy. Well, it's interesting because the program is called Bound to Context, and what you just described there perfectly is the definition of Bound to Context, right? It's your ability to of a large problem space. you got to put certain boundaries on some aspects of it, right? And so, you know, early in the history of software, um, people started trying to, especially in object-oriented, people started trying to model the whole business, and they sort of failed because it's just too many. So the term bound in context was like, you can get your arms around this space, just model that and know that this is connected to this, but not every single thing over here is connected to every single thing over here. And so it's sort of a way to approach large systems and you perfectly sort of describe um, it at that. So tell me a bit about, as you get into sort of things like cloud architecture, so I know that you'd help companies sort of, you know, define and build out their entire cloud environments. How do you go about a problem like that? I tell you what, you know, if I it, let's say I'm sitting down in front of a big customer and they're, they're saying we want to go to the cloud or even more specifically, we have some applications we want to take to the cloud. Because I think that's a better example of what you're asking for than, than a greenfield. Because if it was a greenfield, you know, I'm just going in and do it like I want to do it. Right. You know, within the customer's yeah. expectations and requirements. But but if it's pre-existing stuff that we're trying to modify or do, um, then there's already history behind it. There's already uh, inertia. Uh, behind it and things are already been done a certain way. So the first thing that I'm going to do is I'm going to identify what they're trying to get out of it, right? What What is the, what is the goal uh, of doing this? So for example, if I'm going to put a new application in the cloud, you know, wh what is the application and what is it I'm trying to accomplish? And things are going to feed into that. Like what are the, you know, the software or architecture choices that have already been made, right? Because they're company standards or, you know, the guy who runs that part of the organization is a big fan of, of X, Y, or Z. I mean, it, you get what you get sometimes to work with. And then I'm going to take that and I'm going to start to take what I've got from the, from the customer, you know, their requirements and what they, they have already brought to the table and far as choices and decisions they've already made. And then I'm going to start working it over in my mind. How am I going to get this accomplished for them the way they want? And for me, I'm an old network um, and security guy, so I almost always start with a mental picture of the network flows, right? Because if I know what's talking to what, Mentally, that allows me to start building a mental diagram of, of how things are going to lay out. And then once I've got that mental diagram laid out, then I start to approach it from a couple of different levels. Because no matter what the customer gave you as a requirement, as a good architect, there's always some built-in requirements, right? And the first one's going to be uh, availability and a redundancy. So then I'm going to go through that mental picture and I'm going to start simulating in my brain failure states you know if this goes down what's the implications of that right and, and what's the cascading failures are going to occur off that and how can i make this part of it res resistant to failure and that part of resistant to failure so usually i work through a whole you know series of permutations of that before i even put you know pen to paper and often 
you know, these sort of insights will come to you, you know, when you're driving in a car. I'm, I'm infamous for figuring out stuff while I'm taking a shower. Uh, it'll just come to me in this sort of intuition. And then once I've, I've, I've figured out how to do it um, and make it available, then I'll start approaching it probably from a security mindset, although I do that from the beginning. But here's where I really start. Now, how can I break it? You know, if I was an attacker, where are the weaknesses that I can come in and hammer on? And that somewhat ties into availability because sometimes the weaknesses, you know, availability. But, you know, how, how would I get access to data? You know, how would I where are the weak points in here for me is is if somebody was paying me to break this rather than fix it, you know, where will it be the weak points? At? And then I'll take all that and I'll roll it together. And I usually start to come up with a series of options um, because as a consultant, um, I mean, you can try going into the customer with a single option, um, but oftentimes they're not going to agree with that. So it's best to go with a couple and say, this is the one I think is the best for you. But here's a couple other options. Plus, it shows your work, right? It shows that you considered mm-hmm. all these things. And so I'll come up with a couple different ideas you know, taking everything I've talked about before into account, and then I'll start to try and diagram it out and, and make sure in my head I haven't missed anything and, and how the, the data is going to flow in and out of the application, how everything's going to work. Does that make sense? It completely makes sense. What I think is interesting is me not coming from an ops network background. We, we have entirely sort of different, different backgrounds. It's interesting because you're coming at it from a wholly different perspective than I do. Like, you know, when I'm thinking about solving a problem, a lot of times it's if I'm doing domain driven design, it's like, what are the main, you know, nouns in it? How do they relate? How are they related to each other? And I really think about the domain model, even before I think about the database or like how it's stored and, and never even consider to think about the network. Eventually it gets to those things. But early on, um, I often think about, yeah, this is custom applications, you know, how it's going to work. But I, I think what's interesting is if you meet in the middle, like you take a bit of your approach where you're coming at it from a, it's got to, it's got to run on some environment somewhere, right? So there's some built-in constraints there. Um, and sort of married up with, uh, you know, how, how might you solve it in the business? I feel like they sort of kind of meet, meet in the middle there. So the one thing that separates uh, development from operations is, is, well, there's a lot of things, obviously, but the key thing is, is that as a developer, I've got the freedom to try a couple of different things. But with a traditional operations person, I can't buy 10 different pieces of network equipment, right? Because I'm looking at, I could be looking at a half million to a million dollars per piece of equipment. Um, mm-hmm. If you're big enough in scale, I'm, you know, um, but. Yeah, you don't have the freedom to to change the way you're doing it halfway down. Well, we tried, you know, always in game development, we tried this uh, engine and it didn't work. So then we ripped it out and we put in the Unreal Engine and, you know, everything now is coming together. Yeah, you can't do that after you purchased uh, a half million dollars worth of equipment because you own it for three years. That's the standard, you know, um, financial thing there. So that's where it becomes incredibly um, important to know all of the requirements and the capabilities of all of the products or the tools that you're trying to use. And, and that's, that's kind of where you separate um, a more enterprise style of architect that, you know, can 
diagrams and knows that I want this piece in this box and I want this piece in this box. But I have no idea often the technical requirements and needs behind that, this diagram I've created. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, knowing for certain that, you know, this type of um, thing is not going to support this other type of thing that we want to use. And there's no way that they are. And so I can't make that decision to use the both of those at the same time. Um, so that's really always to me been the, the difference between at least traditional on-premise based operations and development is the developers always have the option to try a different way. And the, the operations guys don't because of, of fiscal and financial um, just permanency of what they're doing. You know? Well, well and I agree with you. Yeah, how does that change or stay with cloud, right? Because on, on the one hand, as we get to more softwares and services, right, you, you're, we're, we're moving the line between like, you know, you don't have to throw down half a million dollars on, uh, on a piece of AWS networking and be like, oh, I don't know, made, made a wrong choice, right? So it seems like the lines are kind of getting a little bit closer in the, in the cloud. I don't think that DevOps as it exists today um, could exist without the cloud or even more importantly, software to find uh, control planes for on-premise hardware, right? Absolutely. And the the cloud gives you a lot of freedom, you know, because it's pay as you go uh, most times. The cloud gives you a lot of freedom to to try and fail, right? Which is great. I mean, as as an old infrastructure guy, man, I love being able to fire up stuff. And even now, as part of my job as an architect, often, especially in cloud architecture, I'll go spin up a little subsection of what we, we're talking about. So I'll know 100% that what I'm telling the customer is going to work the way I want to. And there's no way I could do that. Um, with on-premise infrastructure, I mean, even even education-wise, right? So at one point I had, mm -hmm. I don't know, 18, 20, 30 Cisco certifications. Um, and, I mean, I got a whole box of old routers and switches over here I had to buy to study because you, you just don't go to your laptop yeah. and pull up the Cisco console, yeah. right? You had to uh, actually have the equipment on hand. And then it got to where, you know, there were virtual uh, Cisco stuff you could get like a gns3 and whatnot and then cisco was like wait a minute i don't like that and so they shut it all that down and so you would virtualize these these super expensive tools just to try to do proof of concept stuff because you couldn't unless you were a super tight in with cisco you couldn't just say hey drop all 10 switches down here let me check out and see how this works real fast so yeah. um oh and a lot of the resellers i worked for before you know the cloud um, became popular would have these huge labs with, you know, million dollars, you know, two million dollars worth of vendor yeah. equipment in it because there's no way to test it out. So that's what the cloud is awesome. That's where the cloud is awesome yeah. is that it, it equalizes and levels the playing field to where I don't have to be so in bed with a vendor to get access to something that I desperately need to learn to advance my career with the cloud. I can, it's all there for me right off the beginning. And I just got to be able to get in there and figure out how it all works. Interesting. You know, as, as you were talking, you know, there's some parallels. I remember early in my career, I guess 15 years ago, we had to go um, tune our app and we, a uh, son had a, up in Northern Virginia, son had a lab there. Yep. Our customers had, there, uh, 
I've been we're here. Buy, yeah, I've seen the, okay. Mm -hmm. There's one in Tyson's Corner there. Um, so yeah. our customers were going to buy um, some sun equipment and run on Solaris, of course, uh, great operating system. And uh, so, but we didn't have the equipment to do it. So we got into Sun's lab and we had a week in there performance to this thing. I mean, and there were servers that, you know, were like were this tall and like $390,000. No. I think it was one was like an E2900, 14 way box. I mean, and you're looking at that and I'm thinking that thing costs more than my house does. No. You know, and but it was a huge privilege. You had like one week, so we had like one day of getting everything set up, and four days of tuning it, and you had to just tear everything down and get out of there because for the same thing, yeah, we couldn't afford millions of dollars to do this stuff. But with the cloud, I mean, you, you wouldn't even think about that. There would be no trip to the to the lab to do that. You can essentially do it right out of your house. Yeah, I mean that's that's the key. Not only the cloud, but also open source. Because I mean, I remember guys trying to make me jump in on on with them you know i just bought thirty five hundred dollars worth of you know microsoft training and we're gonna go buy some nt licenses and i'm like nah man uh i got this book with linux in the back of it i'm gonna try that out um because that you know that's where i think it's going the openness of that environment and the ability to get your hands on the most advanced cutting edge tools you want to because they're open source and they're out there for you to play with is in my mind one of the greatest, most fantastic advances um, in our career field in the past 20 years because it allows the up and coming people to, to get in and do the exact stuff um, that the higher level people are doing and have the ability to get their hands on the same tools and, and, and work in the same environments. And I, I think personally it's a, it's a great leap forward. No, absolutely. You know, I, I remember the day early in my career before Apache, there's the NCSA web servers. And then, you know, Apache came out and, and, and Apache really led a lot of the ways in open source in terms of on the software tooling side, you know, I mean, and um, and yeah, it, what's interesting is over time, the old big vendors who used to have proprietary technology, proprietary documentation, proprietary salespeople who took you to golf trips and, and you know, finance, those, those sort of things. It's kind of um, melted away a bit. And open source has sort of went out. So, just this yeah. past um, yeah. gig I was working on with the the IAM um, is the first time in years I couldn't get access to documentation. It was all paywall mm -hmm. behind because it was all old school vendor documentation and the website nothing nothing. You want documentation? Contact sales rep. Um, so it yeah. was just weird going. It was like a trip back in time almost. You know. To be, uh, from where we are now, being able to find documentation and everything too. Yeah. You can't get anything until you talk to a salesperson. Yeah, like an archaeologist. Uh, archaeologist, you know, you got to go dig around and figure it out. So, so let me ask you a question. When it comes to sort of your architecture work, what are some of the key lessons that you've sort of learned? And like, as you apply, like, what are some of the key lessons you apply again and again um, to sort of future projects? I think you know you already mentioned one that I always preach is to measure three times and cut once. You know, and the reason I say that is exactly what we've already talked about is you know back in the day I I had to measure incredibly carefully before I purchased this expensive piece of equipment, right? I didn't have the luxury of of screwing that up, or, or not if I wanted to keep my job. Purely from a general architecture question, um, no single points of failure. Uh, mm -hmm. Manage levels of redundancy. Um, are two of my biggest. Um, no single points of failure. I mean, that's one I always yeah. try to push in my designs. Uh, and that's part of that initial phase where I'm trying to break things in my mind and try to, to see. And that's all included, in it, right? Just thinking about no mm -hmm. single point of failure. If any one piece breaks down, I want 
whatever to keep working, you know, the way it should. Um, and then on the security side, uh, uh, you know, defense in depth, right? Uh, everybody knows that one. Um, and uh, Ryan's laughing because we just heard somebody say that to us on the phone a couple days ago. Um, but, um, you know, I mean, they're platitudes or whatever. Everybody knows them, but they're true. And I don't know if there's any other general principles. I mean, I try to treat I, – I look at my job. I mean, a lot of people – you can look at this as um, I'm a, a workman, right? Um, I, I build tables all day long, um, and, you know, they're all the same table. And I'm fantastic at building that table. Or you can look at it as that I'm a craftsman and I'll make you a custom table that's going to exactly fit what you need, right? It's a little more expensive, uh, but it, it's going to be exactly what you, you want. And that's how I try to consider myself is, is as a craftsman rather than as, you know, just a, 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 a slapper together of things, I guess. Um, yeah. And so I treat every every architecture engagement and every architectural project is an entirely separate entity. And I try not to bring any preconceived uh, notions in. In fact, if, if the customer's already done work and, and hands me a document that says, this is what we think about it, I won't even read it. I won't even read it until I've already decided what I want to do because I don't want to color my impressions uh, based off what they had to say. And then I'll read it and see if we came to the same conclusions. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, to me, it's I treat each one as a separate thing. It's interesting when you talk about sort of redundancy and, and single point of failure, you know, a lot of times in my experience, in my career, I think about performance from, from the get go. You know, if you early in your career, you just want to get working, you don't think a lot about performance. And inevitably you get that project where it doesn't matter if it works, if it doesn't perform, you don't have a working system. And so you really got to get good on things like latency and throughput and, and those things. And when I think of it, when I see a single point, I agree out and I will always avoid a single point. If I can, because I think about this as a choke point from performance, it's sort of a constraint point, you know. And the same sort of thing is, you know, distributed systems, although more complex or more resilient than sort of, you know, smart systems with a central brain. We've seen a lot of that, right? We moved a lot of systems in the cloud, and those are those are kind of the hard ones to, to scale and move when they have that sort of central brain. Or if you go to scale and they get that sort of split brain concept yeah. you described, and and those are sort of things as a as an application architect, I can see systems like that. And, and some sometimes I'm like, hmm, why they do it like that? And oftentimes I've tried to go in and say, well, what it is, it is what it is. I don't know why you got here. Sometimes there's good reasons. Sometimes a person didn't know what they're doing. Sometimes there's budget pressure, or they got handed over three times, you know. Um, but often, when I think about sort of you know resiliency in systems. It really is thinking about not only the resiliency piece of it, but also sort of the performance piece of it. And what are these pieces are likely going to be the slowest thing in this overall process? And then how? What's more, sort of my transactions per second? Like I have to figure out some basic throughput metric early on to figure out my orders of magnitude off. You know, if I'm one x, two x, three x, that's one thing. But if I'm ten or a hundred x off, then I really need to sort of think differently about that. So. Yeah, well, I think who, that, who are some of your, go ahead. Well, let me uh, let me respond to that. I think some of yeah. that uh, is starting to go away and will go away. The, the sort of performance tuning that you and I used to do, right? Mm -hmm. 
sort of performance thing that you had to go up to sun and get deep into the parameter, the kernel parameters of the sun operating system. Yeah. Yeah. I think that sort of performance tuning is gone. I think yeah, that bandwidth and compute is so cheap these days that the future of performance, uh, at least what a lot of what I see is just throwing more at it, right? Just throwing more compute, bigger compute, more, because it's not as, as resource constrained financially because compute and, and network certainly is a lot cheaper than it used to be. I think that sort of fine tuning, um, absolute performance game where we're, we're looking at tracing metrics and we're, we're really getting how the application works. I think there's still a place for that, but I think that's going to be the very last step uh, that people take. And only if they've, they've reached uh, either there's a dramatic gain to be gotten there or they've reached some sort of financial point where they're like, we got to do something else other than just throwing more, you know, at this. We, we know you're right. I mean, because it used to be uh, machines were expensive and people were cheap relatively right and so now what we have is we have computers cheap and people are expensive so you know it, it you're no longer going to take an engineer and film a month probably it's solving a performance pro tuning problem right, right. you're going to say well, I throw, let me throw as much hardware at a virtual hardware as i can and can i mask it long enough to to, to get over it right. and then um but usually you know early in my career i learned a lesson from from an architect he's like you know, usually you could 1x or improve by 100 percent an application's performance just by tuning it. But beyond that, it gets increasingly more complex and expensive to, to tune it. So I always knew, well, you know, if I need to double the capacity of the system, I probably could do that within the existing sort of architecture, but you know, 5X and 10X, then you may have to go back to the drawing board um, on those sort of things. So, well, let me ask you two, two questions to wrap up. Who are some of your influences related? So, you know, who do you, you know, who do you keep track of, track of either a person or a group, or how do you get influenced in terms of thinking about sort of solving these architectural problems? Well, I'm a bit of a rebel, uh, as we know, but uh, I would guess, you know, certainly there have been influences. Um, there used to be a guy, um, he ran ioshints.com, and he's a, he's a, CI, a CCIE emeritus now. Uh, Ivan, uh, his name is escaping me right now. Um, but he was one of the smartest and most advanced networking guys um, around. Still is. I mean, I don't mean nothing's happened to him. Um, but I used yeah. to love reading and, and listening and thinking about what he had to say because he was looking and, and doing things at a level that was far above um, what the standard network people talk about because networkers as a whole is a very uh, flat and stable uh Technology. I mean, there's always developments going, but you don't go in and re-roll your entire internal network every three years. You know what I'm saying? That's an expensive yeah, undertaking yeah, yeah. In, in a lot of different ways. Uh, and so, you know, there's a lot of bleeding edge work that goes on in those sort of fields that may never see uh, usage on a server floor or on, on you know data center floor. Uh, but it's cool to follow. Um, especially when software defined networking got really big. He was one of the major guys. Uh, that I look to for for that, um, and then back, you know, the old school security guys like Aleph One that wrote um, "Smashing the Stack for Fun and Profit," probably the most influential uh, mm -hmm. security paper uh, ever written, uh, text file rather than paper. Kevin Mitznick, eh. uh, 
he was he was all right, I guess. Uh, the guy who caught him though, that the Japanese guy that caught him, um, T T S something. I'm horrible with names today, but uh, he wrote a book called Takedown, which was pretty cool back in the day, um, where it, you know really got in in depth how he he busted Mitznick, which was pretty cool. And then you know a lot of the old O'Reilly. Uh, book writing guys, you know, um, Chapman and Zawicki's building internet firewalls back in the you know early 90s. Um, the guy who wrote uh, advanced cryptography, uh, Bruce Schneer from Counterpain, uh, always a fascinating guy to to follow and listen to. But, that, you know, other than that, I, there's not really any one person I could point to, well-known person I could point to. I mean, locally, there were guys that inspired me. There was you know, there was an initial, there used to be only like one or two CCIEs around town in the city of Richmond, you know, a long time ago. And I knew both of them and, you know, they were inspirational to me as, uh, you know, back then the CCIE meant, really meant something. I mean, not to say that it doesn't now, but back then they were even rarer than they are now. Um, and so those guys were inspirational to me as as aspirational right something i could look up to and, and maybe try to claw my way up to but um that would probably be uh, in general what i think that's a really good lesson maybe what we can do is get um lindsay to run those people down get some hyperlinks yeah. we can share it out here so uh, our viewers can follow along so it's so the last last question john what topics are you currently top of mind like what, what's what's exciting to you these days what are you staying interested in what can you share there's so much man uh, there's so many things going on right now. Um, I've still got my brain thinking a lot about uh, app and service meshes because I think they're going to be really, really important um, in in future architecture. Um, I've also been really interested in this new VPN technology called um, Wired. Oh God. Terrible today with the memory. It's wire something, Lindsay. Sorry. Um, there, there's a there's a wire. Uh, anyway, it's it's just starting to get built into Linux and getting more and more popularity. But it's a, evidently a, a more advanced way to do uh, VPNs um, that I want to get into uh, when I get a chance to to look. Um, other than that, I always have some kind of recertification. I've got to be uh, looking at. Uh, so I think yeah. up this year is uh, AWS Professional Architect that I got to recertify. So um, I want to get into doing that. And then I want to finish the AWS Network uh, Specialization. Um, and so I'll probably will spend some time delving into that technology stack uh, a lot more into Direct Connect and Transit Gateways, which are also interesting for me because it's like networking in the cloud is getting more and more complicated, which I like. Um, but that's probably the gist of what I've been looking at now. I mean, there's so many things out there. There's always something that'll catch my eye. Um, and I've been lazy with the coronavirus and everything going on. I haven't uh, been spending as much time, you know, catching up with technology and looking at things as I probably uh, would like to do. But, you know, and there's no telling, man. It's something, you know, a shiny object would just catch my attention and I'll have to go down a rabbit hole. Yeah, no, I've got a bunch of InfoQ emails bookmarked. I'm like, damn it, I just got time to, to read those. Uh, they're all kind of queued up. I've been saying things. So, well, cool. All right. Well, uh, Don, thank you very much for um, coming to the uh, inaugural episode of Bound of Context. I appreciate you um, joining us. All right. Well, thank you, everybody. Um, we got uh, more guests coming up here soon. But uh, with that, we'll sign off. Take care.